So Dave, so, uh, I, the other Dave said I, he couldn't make it today. <laughs> okay, cool. This episode is sponsored by Compose.io. Compose is a fully managed database hosting with extra security, scaling, and performance. Hosted on dedicated SSD servers, you can pick from nine highly available databases, MongoDB, Elasticsearch, Redis. Compose Enterprise comes with easy scaling, which means you can add additional nodes at any time. It's auto-scaled resources like storage, memory, and IOPS, RESTful APIs, central console to manage all your deployments, and premium support with guaranteed response time and priority ticketing. With Compose Enterprise, you can free up your time to focus on building your app instead of managing your database. Check them out at enterprise.compose.com. And if you try Compose, you'll get a free special edition t-shirt. Hurry, quantities are limited. That's enterprise.compose.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jason Sweat. Hello. Brian Hogan. Hi, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's David Hem... Is it Hemat or Hemat? Hemat. Hemat, yeah. Do you want to give us a brief introduction, and then we can dive right into our topic today? Sure. Thanks a lot for having me. So, basically, I'm a developer. I've been doing Ruby on Rails development for about uh, six, seven years now, and I went to college in Dominican Republic. And when I graduated, I started working for some companies here locally. After that, I started working for some U.S.-based companies remotely. And at some point, I realized there was a kind of gap that we could bridge. There were a lot of good developers here in the DR, you know, really talented guys, excellent English and excellent skills. Um, And they were doing fairly low-paid jobs here. And part of it was that they didn't have access to better opportunities. And by access, I mean these developers uh, didn't have a way to... Uh, reach these uh, opportunities that we had abroad. And at some point, I had a friend who um, wrote to me, and he asked, do you have any developer friends that you might recommend? I said, sure. Uh, you know, I, I know a few developers. Um, let's talk about, you know, what you're looking for, and I'll sit down and I'll find somebody for you um, that, that's a good fit. Um, and so I did. Uh, he started working part-time with this developer, um, and we realized there was an opportunity that we could turn into a company here. And so that's pretty much what we've been uh, what we've been doing for the past three years. Uh, we have a number of clients in the U.S. and Canada, and we try to connect them with developers in Latin America. Uh, we focused on Latin America specifically uh, for a couple reasons. You know, one of the main reasons is time zone. So we're looking for people who are in the same time zones as our clients. We generally look between Eastern time and Pacific time, and Latin America is the perfect place to do that. Then another reason is that there are some cultural differences between uh, developers and work culture in Latin America and in other parts of the world. You know, one of the the most common complaints that we had from our our customers when we were talking about having developers abroad was, well, we've had different communication issues with them. Uh, We'll speak to the developers. um, We'll ask whether what we want to do is possible. Everybody will say yes, and then they'll come back a month later and nothing will be done. Um, and <laughs> yeah, and it, it's a simple matter of uh, feeling uncomfortable with saying no or raising your hand when there was an issue. And you know, these are all uh, common complaints that we've had. And uh, we've found that developers in Latin America have had uh, a lot of experience working with U.S.-based companies. Um, the work culture that's been adopted by software companies in Latin America is generally a U.S. work culture. Uh, so you'll get the same kind of um, uh, of uh, behavior from your developers. You know, they'll be comfortable raising their hand and saying, this is a bad idea, we should talk about it. Uh, or 
saying, you know, I, I just don't understand. Let, let's discuss this before we move forward, uh, which is something that we have seen that doesn't often happen in other parts of the world. That's not to say that developers in other parts of the world aren't great. I just did. You have to learn how to work with them. And it's a little bit more difficult sometimes. Yep. Now, it's, it's interesting just talking about this from this standpoint, because I've hired people to do various jobs for me from Philippines, from Pakistan, mm-hmm. as well as from Brazil and Argentina. I've worked with people from Mexico, some of the companies that I contracted with, and some of them were programmers and some of them weren't. And it's, it's interesting just the way you're talking through this. Um, I don't know that I had anyone tell me yes and then not deliver so much as they would just kind of disappear for a while. Um, especially in, in Pakistan, India, and Philippines. It's like, uh, hi, are you there? And then like, you know, a couple days later, you know, you finally get a, oh, sorry, you know, I had this thing happen or, you know, we had a typhoon or something. But, you know, some of these people, it's like, well, you don't have a typhoon every other week. So, you know. Well, it's a, right. it's, a, it's, you know, that's, that's one of those indications, even if you, uh, you know, just for any, for anyone that's a freelancer, it's one of those indications that maybe they're overextended. You know, mm-hmm. they've got a lot of, lot a lot going on and you're just not high enough on the priority list for them. That's, yep. that's usually how I read that. And that's, that's one of those things that if you're, if you're working remotely or you're freelancing, it just always kind of comes back to the idea that staying in constant communication with the people you're working for is really important. And if you can't do that, Maybe you're overextended. Right. right. So I think there's a few elements there. For sure, there are some environment elements that affect. So, for example, we have tried to work with people in Venezuela, which is in Latin America, and we have decided that it's, for the most part, not a good idea. Um, and that's uh, funny because I'm originally from Venezuela, but just the current political and economic situation there uh, gives us a lot of trouble. There's you know, power outages. There's internet outages. And so we can't have somebody who's reliably working with us every day unless they you know, set up a system to, to work around those issues. And so I'm, I'm sure that there are some environmental issues that affect. Um, but the other thing is that not all developers are good freelancers uh, in the sense that being a good freelancer requires a little bit of a different skill set. You have to be uh, willing to communicate <laughs> on time and at adequately and say, look, um, I have a number of things that I have to do. I'll be able to get to your item in three days or in one week sometimes. And a lot of people just don't feel comfortable doing that. And the way we've, we've approached this is that we're not necessarily looking for freelancers. In fact, most of our developers are not freelancers. Uh, they are people who have been working a full-time job elsewhere, and we've offered them a better opportunity. And so we've tried to structure some things around that to avoid some of these communication issues. And, you know, it's simple stuff. Uh, time tracking is one. So we have a pretty uniform way of, t- of tracking time. You know, we ask developers to kind of log their hours every day that they work with a small description of what they've been doing. Uh, then other, another is to have uh, a little email sent at the end of the day, kind of like a daily report saying, oh, today I worked on this, tomorrow I'm expecting to work on this, and these are some of the challenges I'm facing. So that's on the developer side. We have to have some of these tools in place uh, so that they can be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can take a great developer and put him in, you know, put him in a position, and if you don't um, have the tools in place so that they can communicate properly, then they're not going to be successful. I can um, I can just sec- second mm-hmm. that. So of the three people that I've worked with in Latin America, I had one guy that he was in Brazil and he just didn't work out, and that was the main problem. Whereas the other two, the 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 developer that I worked with in Mexico, I didn't hire him. He actually just was contracting for a company I was working for. And the it was a pairing uh, culture, 
And so he had to be mm-hmm. on with us every day. And so, right. you know, a lot of these issues didn't exist. And then uh, the last person that I'm thinking of, he's actually been on this show, I think, once or twice and did some work for me for a few years. And he was really good about just making sure that I knew what was going on um, down in Argentina. And so, yeah, it, it I mean, that's usually what it boils down to for me is, am I hearing back from these folks and, and do I know what's going on? Right. And these are issues that you could have with a developer in the U.S. if he's remote yeah. also. Uh, it's just different to have somebody in office. Um, another part of what we try to work around is that we have to work with our clients uh, and make sure that they have the systems in place. So do you have a proper project management tool where the developer can go in and see what he's supposed to be working on next? Um, are you using any kind of development methodology? Uh, you know, It could be Scrum. It could be mm-hmm. a, any variant uh, that you want. Uh, but just having some of these things in place really makes things move forward quickly. And ultimately, there are challenges with working remotely, but the advantage is that you get really good developers that you wouldn't be able to find locally or you wouldn't be able to find them for a, 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 better, a good rate, let's say. Yeah, that's fair. You, I mean, you're bringing up rates and I, I'm sure it varies from country to country and uh, person to person depending on their experience and things. But generally, w- what kind of rates are you seeing people get? So um, I think that most companies like ours, uh, well, I can tell you our rates, we trend, tend to be between 30 and 45 an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and we tried to work with more experienced developers. Uh, so I think that you know most of our develop- developers have at least uh, three, four years of working experience. We don't like working with junior developers very much because uh, you know ultimately you don't know what you're going to get. There's other companies out there that are more expensive. You know, I've seen 45 to 90 an hour. I've seen 30 to 60. Uh, it really depends on the company. Mm-hmm. But I think you know starting at 30 in Latin America is pretty common. Then in Asia and other countries, it really varies. You know, I've I've seen super low rates. I've seen ten dollars an hour uh, from some companies in India, um, and there's also, you know, there's developers uh, here in the DR that will be charging a hundred plus an hour. And so, uh, what we do is we'll sit down and say, okay, so, you know, what is an acceptable budget for you? And we'll try to work around that budget to find somebody who's really good um, within that rate. That makes sense. So if, if you've convinced me or some other business manager, hey, look, um, maybe I should hire Nearshore, which is, uh, you know, within, you know, in, in the similar time zone to me, you know, U.S. time zones. So that usually means South America or, you know, something close to the U.S. Caribbean. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, h- how do I get started with this? I mean, do I have to go through an agency like yours or can I find people other ways? Um, there's several ways to do it. Uh, you know, the first thing everybody tries is Upwork <laughs> or Freelancer or one of those companies. There's ups and downs to that. Uh, so, you know, that kind of company will have uh, generally lower overhead. Um, I think it, generally between 5 and 20% above whatever the developer is getting. On the downside, there's pretty much no vetting. So anybody can get on there and create a profile. And there's a lot of uh, shady stuff going on, I guess. You know, there's a lot of developers working with somebody else, but they don't, they won't let you know about that. And ultimately, you just have to be careful and you have to spend a lot of time uh, kind of looking through, through different developers and trying to figure out who the right guy is for you. Um, the other downside to that type of company is that they have a fairly large buyout fees. So if you decide at some point, you know, I, I don't really want to go through uh, this website's um, payment system. I want to, I want to hire this person directly. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I haven't done it personally, but I know that they have uh, pretty large fees to do that. Uh, there's other companies like ours, which are uh, essentially staffing companies. Um, 
we offer a little bit more personalized service. So we'll sit down with you, try to figure out what your business is, uh, what your technical needs are, what your team looks like. Uh, and based on that, we'll create a profile of what this developer needs to look like. Um, and we already have a network of developers that we regularly work with. So we'll look into that network and try to find somebody who's adequate. Uh, there's another, you know, there, there are there are a number of other ways. Um, if you have uh, developer friends in Latin America, I would go ahead and ask them. They'll probably recommend somebody good. Yeah, that's that's how I wound up with the guy that worked for me for a few years out of Argentina was uh, he listened to the podcasts and we wound up chatting and then I wound up hiring him for some work and then wound up hiring him for more work. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. yeah, I don't I don't think people really understand how powerful that network effect really is. Yeah. I, I, I see so many people. I see so many people getting great opportunities because of of the people they know. And I also see a lot of other people missing out on opportunities because of their work history, because of, of like the communication issues we're talking about. I mean, just as just as someone will recommend that, yes, you should work with this person because she's awesome. Uh, they'll also say you probably want to avoid that person because they're unresponsive. Yeah, that's uh, right. I think, I think that's really important that, you know, to keep that in mind. That your reputation, good or bad, tends to follow you around, and that's that. That saves an individual developer who's looking for some help on a project. That saves them some time if they can just go to go to Twitter, go to their close circle of friends, go to business associates, and say, "I'm looking for someone to augment my team. Who can I go to?" And I suspect that's sort of what what you you provide, David, is sort of that. You know? Yeah, essentially that. You know, our largest source of developers by far is uh, our other developers. So the first thing we'll do when we need a Node.js developer is we'll go ask another one and we'll say, hey, um, you know, we have this new project. We know you're busy. Uh, do you have anybody you can recommend? And we'll put that person through a vetting process. Uh, but that that generally results in, in, in finding new people that are really good at what they do. <laughs> and likewise, uh, the people that we've done work with uh, that we've been happy with, we call them again. Um, so, you know, sometimes we have a project that's a year long, two years long, and then the project will drop off. And whenever we have a new opportunity, uh, that person will be our first pick because they have a good track record of working with us. That makes sense. David, that kind of leads into a question that I was going to ask you, which is this. All freelancers that I know and, and agencies that I've, that I've worked with have had a boom and bust cycle where they get really busy and then things get really slow and they get really busy and, and so on. How do you deal with that boom and bust cycle? So I think we've uh, deal, dealt with it by uh, selecting our customers carefully. Um, so what we're looking for in, at Blue Coding, uh, our company, um, is we look for smaller companies, which is the people we can serve the best, that have long-term projects. Uh, and long-term projects uh, sometimes means they are an agency that has a continuous uh, flow of projects. Um, and sometimes it means they have one product that they're developing. And the reason we look for these specific types of clients is that the best developers already have jobs, and the only way we can convince them that we have a better opportunity for them and they should join us is if we can offer them a long-term engagement. And so we're looking for people who ideally have no end in sight to their projects. And that allows us also to offer more affordable rates. There are other companies out there that will have much higher rates, and then they'll cover the downtime, right? So they'll have the developer hired on a, you know, with a monthly salary, and whenever there's work, good. Whenever there's not work, they'll have them working on on uh, you know internal projects, probably. One thing that I'm wondering about. I mean, most of this conversation has been pretty U.S. centric, or mm -hmm. uh, you know, I guess first world centric, where you know we're we're in a wealthy country and we're trying to offshore maybe uh, save a little bit of money 
and uh, you know find opportunities to get high quality developers uh, from a market that isn't as competitive or hard to find people in. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm curious if I'm one of those people, let's say that I live in Latin America somewhere, how do I go about either meeting people or finding agencies like yours that are going to allow me to get the kind of work that I want? You know, because Upwork, it seems like it's kind of hit or miss if you're going to find somebody that will actually hire you. So, yeah, what are my other options? That's a tough question. The good thing for developers is that they only need one job at a time if it's a full-time mm -hmm. job. <laughs> so right. that they only, they only need one hit. You know, there's a lot of job boards uh, that are used in each country. Each country has its own uh, job boards that are mostly focused on local jobs. There's sites uh, like Working Nomads, and I think we work remotely, uh, where there are opportunities, uh, you know, from from companies all over the world, uh, but mostly Western Europe and the U.S. and Canada. Uh, so those those are places that I generally recommend people to look at. And then there's also, uh, you know, in, in, I guess uh, technology specific board jobs around. Um, I don't recall any of them right now, but I remember there's a big Rails one, uh, something like Rails Jobs. Um, and so if you're a Rails developer, you might want to look into those. The truth is that it's pretty difficult to compete. Um, if you know, you're applying for a job that is from a U.S. company, it's paying a U.S. salary, then there's no real reason uh, for somebody to hire you as opposed to an equally qualified developer in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to be really good. <laughs> and that's the first thing I tell developers that uh, want to start working with us. Um, you know, I'll have a brief conversation with them, ask them what their work history is. And oftentimes I'll say, look, you're on the right path, but come back in a couple of years. You still need to gain some experience uh, so that we can place you the right jobs. That makes sense. The other question I guess I have is how do they demonstrate their expertise? I mean, is it harder to just even get looked at if you're from one of these Latin American countries as opposed to being in the U.S.? I'm sure there's some prejudice <laughs> in certain companies. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's that common. Um, I have a number of friends uh, that are working for uh, Silicon Valley startups from here, from the Dominican Republic, and they have very active GitHub profiles. You know how they have a great work mm -hmm. history, and the company is just looking for talent wherever they can find it. So I think that once you're a top level talent, then it becomes a lot easier. I think that if yeah, that that's mainly it. If you're okay. If you're average as a developer, uh, I think it, it's more difficult. Um, it depends on how open the company is to hiring abroad also. There are certain complications that come with hiring abroad. Uh, sometimes it's tax implications. Sometimes it's just, you know, do I want to hire remotely or would I rather have somebody in my city who can come to my office every once in a while? So there are some of those things that the company that's hiring needs to be aware of and needs to think about how they're going to handle. And that's also one of the things that we try to um, to take care of. You know, we, we take, take care of all the legal and tax implications for the developers. And our clients are just working with a U.S.-based company. So one more question that I have just related to a lot of this is I had a conversation with somebody from Trinidad, I think, a while back. And when I w so I'm putting together a course on how to find a, a, a job as a developer. Mm -hmm. It's mostly aimed at people who have been working in the industry for a few years and are looking for a better job. And, and it talks about the network effect that Brian mentioned. But anyway, when I was talking to this particular developer, he was new-ish. And there mm -hmm. really wasn't a large community down there that he could go to to kind of level up with friends or with any kind of in-person help. So if people are in that kind of a situation in Latin America, you know, what are their options there? It seems like here in the U.S., you know, you can still find a lot of 
English speaking friendly opportunities. And, and down there, if you don't speak English or you're not connected to the community in some way, it, it feels a little bit harder to get to the point where you could actually then get hired. Sure. So there are less networking opportunities down here. Depends a little bit on the country. Argentina, for example, has a big developer community. Uh, Chile does too. Brazil is a huge country, huge number of developers, and they've got you know their own things going on. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of smaller countries. Uh, here in the Caribbean, for example, developer communities are smaller. In the Dominican Republic, we have a fairly active developer community in the capital, but where I am, uh, you know, there's pretty much nothing going on. So I'm in the same situation. You know, how do I get involved with developers around me? It's difficult. I'd say that there is always a chance to try to join uh, some open source projects. There is a number of you know Facebook groups or LinkedIn communities that one can join to try to be a little bit more involved. Uh, and then there's a lot of people that are actually you know making efforts to build development communities in this area. I have a friend who organized uh, PyCon in the Caribbean, and it was a pretty big undertaking, you know, for for a country like ours. He, he they had you know guests from at least a dozen countries. They had speakers from from a number of places, and just setting all of that up was pretty complicated. But there are definitely people that are trying to work to make those things happen. And if you know if you're a, a lonely developer in an island in the Caribbean, well, you know that the first thing I'd say is try to uh, find some online communities that you can join. There's a lot of places that are up there sharing ideas, sharing content. Uh, so that's a, a good place to start. And then try to attend events uh, wherever they are near you. Yeah, it makes sense. And I'm also trying to create an online community where people can come here that doesn't cost a lot. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's tricky for people to to make all of that work. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely a challenge. I don't know if I have anything else to, to ask you. Is there anything else that people don't think about when they start thinking about this Hmm. kind of thing? Sure. There's a lot of things that they don't think about. Maybe I can bring up some of them. You know, one of the the most important things that I could could bring up in terms of working remotely and being good at it, uh, being successful at it, um, is that it's a two-part effort. From one side, you know, the the employer has to make sure that tools and, uh, yeah, the the tools and the systems are in place so that that can happen. Uh, But developer can also request them. So, there's simple things that you can do. For example, uh, make sure that if you have an in-house team uh, and then you have some guys working remotely, make sure that everything is written somewhere online, right? If you use Slack, then write everything on Slack or use write it on your project management tool uh, just because there's a lot of office talk that goes on and then you leave some developers out. So you have to make those developers really feel like part of your team. Another thing is that there's a lot of things that I would encourage that uh, you know some companies don't think of. Uh, things like uh, code reviews in pair programming, uh, which look like an additional cost, but ultimately br- really bring up the quality of the code and uh, allow the developers that are remote uh, to feel like a real part of the team. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole, never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. 
After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. And on Hired, you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. And if you sign up today using the show's link, that's Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues, you can get double the normal hiring bonus. That's $600 instead of $300. So go check them out at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. Makes sense to me. Makes sense to me. I have I have a question. Uh, there's a lot of areas uh, around the country. I'm, I'm going to take a kind of a localized area, Minneapolis, St. Paul versus Duluth, Minnesota, which is uh, a couple hours north of there. Mm-hmm. Um, hiring hiring software developers in the Minneapolis and St. Paul area is is it's expensive to hire local developers, and so some of the some of the companies uh, in that area are they're doing something called onshoring, where mm-hmm. they're essentially hiring people from Duluth and Superior, Wisconsin, and other uh, other smaller areas where the cost of living is lower. If that's an opportunity, if, if if you have a company that's willing to hire a remote developer, what would come down to, what, why would you choose to go with someone in another country as opposed to someone in in the same in the same country? I, I'm just sort of wondering because I can I can think of a few reasons myself, uh, but I'd love to hear what what your experience tells you. Yeah. So one thing is definitely cost. What kind of rates are we talking about in, in Minneapolis, for example? What are you, what are your thoughts on rates? Well, it's funny when you say that you've got people that are getting that, – that, that you've got people that are $35, $45 an hour. And if I do the math on that, that's around 90 or so. Uh, if you've got a full-time job, it's about you know, um, $90,000 a year. In the United States, it's going to be 1099 work, so the person's going to be responsible for their own taxes. But that's still you – know, you, you've, you've got some developers working in, in, in the areas where I'm at. In, I, I'm in a, I'm in a town – uh, I'm east of uh, Minneapolis, uh, about an, uh, 80 or 90 minutes away, and you know the software development rates here are, are you know anywhere from 60 to 85 thousand dollars a year. That's that the mm-hmm. salary is here. Yep. Um, so so it so, seems mm-hmm. it seems like you've got you've got benefits involved in that too. So if you're hiring someone full time, but if you're hiring someone as a as a contractor. I'm I'm kind of wondering. You're not talking about the ten dollar an hour, you know, the ten dollar an hour rates uh, yeah. that that's, that some places charge. Yeah, you're talking right. about you're talking about a, a a higher a higher rate. So it's it's a lot more. I guess that was the biggest surprise with with talking to you here is that I, I was surprised that the rates were. Uh, were higher than I than I thought they were going in. So yeah, no, uh, definitely, and that's that's a some a common thing that we need to discuss with our clients. You know, the first thing I I, I ask them is, okay, so um, what type of developer are you looking for? Let's have a conversation, try to figure out that, and then what what is your budget? Uh, because depending on what your budget is, we can find somebody for you in one place or in another. Ultimately. You know, our goal is to find the best developer possible for your project that fits within your budget, and we have had great developers at twenty an hour. Uh, you know, really, really good guys. And then we've had great developers at 40 an hour. And uh, a big factor was cost of living. So if you live in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, uh, cost of living is just really high. It's uh, pretty much, uh, you know, it's very close to the U.S. in a lot of senses. And so their their rates are higher. Again, it depends on where you are in the U.S. Uh, so we have, you know, a number of clients in New York. And for them, they're paying half uh, of what they would pay there. 
for example. The other factor is how easy is it for you to find uh, developers in you know, smaller, smaller cities in the U.S. Uh, where the cost of living is lower. We have never thought of focusing in the U.S. as a place for finding developers, uh, but just having this conversation with you makes me realize that that is definitely a possibility. And to answer your first question, which was why do we, you know, why would we go look in Brazil when we have uh, good developers right nearby uh, whose rates are even potentially lower, well, the, the the only real reason I can give you is that we want to find a really good developer and how easy is it for you to find that really good developer uh, you know, in that smaller town. It's a matter of the fact that we have a network in Latin America. We don't necessarily have a network in the U.S. Uh, so much. Mm-hmm. And so when we have a new Rails job that we need to fill, uh, we already know where to reach out to in Latin America. Sure, it's a good extent. Again, it's that it's that network effect. I was I was going to wonder. Uh, this this is one of one of my thoughts, and I'm not sure how how true this is. But when we talk about the cost of living, um, I know what the health insurance system is here in the United States, but I'm not that familiar with what it is in Latin America. But I, I suspect that that also has something to do with the cost of, with the the rates and the cost of living, because a person who's working remotely or freelancing here uh, in the United States it has to cover the cost of their their medical. Uh, coverage themselves. Yeah. Well. So, yeah, it depends on the country. So I'll give you an interesting example, which is the Dominican Republic. Uh, basically, the law in Dominican Republic states that if you work for somebody as a contractor or, or as an employee for more than three months, you're just considered an employee. Um, and what that means is that if I hire somebody from blue coding in the U.S. Uh, for more than three months, then suddenly uh, I owe them, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, benefits, social security, or you know the equivalent, which is we have health insurance, we have pension fund, they have vacations, they have uh, severance. So there's a bunch of things that go, get factored into that, and uh, that's part of what drives the salaries down uh, in some of those countries. Is that the companies have to deal with all of that. Um, so it, it depends on the country how we handle it. Um, Dominican Republic is a country where we'll uh, potentially hire people directly as employees. Uh, and so they'll get a lower salary uh, than than they would if they were working as contractors, but they'll get all the benefits. Uh, and then uh, there's other countries that just allow developers to work as uh, freelancers for, for the long term. Um, and what we need to ensure is that they're actually paying their taxes properly and they're reporting everything properly. Uh, health insurance in Latin America tends to be cheaper. A lot of countries have have, yeah, they have either uh, good public health or they have uh, cheaper insurance plans. Uh, as you know, the, the cost of healthcare in general is probably lower, so the health insurance is uh, cheaper in general. But uh, there's a lot of things to consider. You know, there's taxes, there's vacation time, there's all these things that uh, a contractor in the U.S. would have to consider too. That's I want to bring something up real quick, and I, I don't want to take us down a rabbit hole with this, but I do want to mention it. Um, and that is the distinction between hourly rates and annual salaries because a lot of people will think like okay if i'm if i'm making a hundred thousand dollars a year that's fifty dollars an hour times two thousand hours in a year is um a hundred thousand dollars a year and i think i've heard actually chuck i think i've heard you talk about this on the freelancer show some time ago how, how people come up with their freelance rates that way but it really doesn't work that way because if you charge fifty dollars an hour as a freelancer, you're you're not going to make a hundred thousand dollars a year because there's you don't get paid vacation and you're not going to be steadily like uh, utilized your whole entire time. And so, really, you're probably going to make something more like fifty thousand bucks a year if you charge fifty dollars an hour. 
So, so that's like from the freelancers in and then from the employers in, I don't know this because I've never been on that end, but I understand that your fully loaded cost for an employee is probably going to be closer to twice that employee's salary. And yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, if anybody knows better. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it's closer to about 40, 40%. Yeah. Um, in, in most cases. But I mean, when I threw out the number, I was doing that, doing that math in my head. I was doing it based on the thought, this and the fact that, uh, that uh, David was talking about bringing people onto a project for full time. And that's, that's become, that becomes tricky because the, uh, to, to Jason's point, I think it's really important that everybody who's thinking about going into freelancing keep that in mind because, uh, if you do them, if you do the math as, as I, as I did in my head and the math that Jason suggested, uh, you also have to think about the fact that you're lucky to get, if you're freelancing, cause I've done this before, you're lucky to get a full day, you know, you're lucky to get four hours of work done because the other four hours you're chasing down billing, you're, you're doing invoicing, you're doing some marketing, things like that. Um, and a long time ago, the freelance switch website used to have this amazing calculator that made you answer about a hundred questions to help you compute your freelance rate. And that's gone now. So if anybody has any links to something like that, that'd be nice to share too. So just looking at it from the developer's perspective, there's a th- couple of things to consider. So one is that when you're working on one of these projects, there's always a chance that it's going to end. Unfortunately, uh, you know, if if the person who the the client uh, who's hiring you has five employees and suddenly their budget is running out, our remote developers are the first ones to be cut. You know, it's an unfortunate situation, but we understand. And so, what we try to do on our side is we try to uh, find them work as soon as possible. But there is always, uh, you know, the possibility of downtime uh, with this kind of work. Uh, the other thing is that uh, they're covering all of their benefits. So a lot of companies in the U.S. will give you different benefits. Uh, you know, sometimes it's vacation time, it's uh, good health insurance, and there's a number of things that do add on to uh, the total cost of having an employee. Here in Dominican Republic, we've calculated about 50% above uh, whatever we're paying the employee. And there's different ways to do it in the U.S. depending on what kind of benefits you're, you're giving. And then there's other things to consider uh, just with remote developers versus on-site uh, you know, office space, equipment, all that kind of stuff. So one thing that I'm wondering about, and Jason actually said this was his question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What, what kind of companies are typically looking for this sort of solution to their staffing problem? Well, I can't tell you what kind of companies. I can tell you the ones that we've worked with at least. Okay. And I, I'm saying I can't tell you which kind of companies because we haven't had a lot of experience working with medium to large companies. Uh, most of our clients have been smaller companies. And there's some common things that I've, I've seen most of them have. You know, they're usually 1 to 20 employees, I think. They have a lot of uh, work, development work, long-term development work. And um, we found that there's a you know generally three sectors. One is companies that are not tech companies, uh, but that do have an important uh, tech component to them. So for example, we have some clients that are online shops and you know they have probably a team of five that manages everything, but they don't really have an in-house developer. And so we kind of provide them with somebody who can be their CTO and developer at the same time. And that requires you know the, the type of developer that has experience um, understanding things from the business perspective. Uh, then we have uh, some clients that are digital agencies um, that just have a lot of work coming in. And so they have enough work where they can uh, move a developer from one project to another uh, with pretty much no downtime. And then we have a, lo- uh, you know, a number of, of clients that are uh, startups or uh, actually established companies that have software or are developing a software product. 
uh, and need to maintain it in the long term. And most of these are, you know, companies that have been building their their product for uh, at least a year or two, um, have a roadmap of how to get where they're where they're looking to get, and are self-funded. Uh, we have had some companies that weren't self-funded, that weren't bootstrapped, but those are always kind of dangerous because they tend to hire three, four developers and then their money runs out and then they have to cut down. So we're, we're trying to avoid that kind of situation, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I stole your question, Jason. I'm very upset and you and I are going to have to talk about this later. Right, Jason, I think you wanted to know um, how we find clients. Yeah, but Chuck, uh, Chuck stole my question and then I told a joke that nobody laughed at. <laughs> no, but actually, I wasn't answering that specific question. I think Chuck asked me uh, what type of of companies yeah. uh, we're we're reaching out to. Um, oh, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. As yeah. to how we find clients. Um, yeah, I'm off the hook. It's a mixed bag. We're still trying to figure out in a long measure, but you know, one of the main ways is references. Um, in general, the people that we've worked with have been very happy with our work. The thing that's most important to our credibility is how well we vet developers. Um, and so we've had to say, we don't have a developer for you. We're sorry. You know, Go look somewhere else. And the reason is that we'd much rather do that than introduce somebody who is not a good fit uh, for the project. Once we do that, you know, we're in trouble. So we've had a lot of references. A lot of it has been networking, uh, different conferences, different people we've met online. And then we've also done some cold calling, which has been successful sometimes and not so successful other times. I'm sure you guys have all received uh, tens of emails from companies in India that are looking mm-hmm. to do the same thing as we are. <laughs> I, I, you know, I feel that we are offering a high quality service, uh, but it's hard to convey that uh, via email. Uh, so I think that a lot of our clients uh, now are just coming through friends. Makes sense. So if there's a company out there that wants to hire Latin American developers or on the other end of things, if there is a, a Latin American developer who thinks that you might be able to help find them work, mm-hmm. what do you recommend? You can go to our site, www.bluecoding.com, blue is in the color. We have a little section that says join the team if you're a developer and you can drop us a note if you're looking for a developer. Either way, uh, it all starts with a little conversation. Uh, so if it's a developer, we'll uh, you know, receive their CV. Um, we'll have a little chat with them and see what they've been doing and what they're looking to do. Uh, if we have a position available at the time where they might be able to, to be a good fit, or we'll put them through a vetting process. And if we don't at that time, then we'll add them to our uh, database of developers. Um, and we kind of tag them with their, the technologies that they work with. And so once we have a project come in, uh, then we'll um, you know, look them up and give them a call, see if they're still available, and uh, try to put them through the vetting process. On, uh, you know, if you're a company that's looking to hire developers, it's fairly simple. We want to have a call with you and try to figure out what you're looking for. And you know, that means what are you building, what industry are you in, what does your team look like, and what difficulties you're facing. Uh, we've had clients uh, come and ask for developers, and they actually didn't need them. Um, what they needed was a better project management process. Uh, <laughs> so we'll try, to, we'll try to help them figure that out. And if we determine that you actually do need a developer, we'll, we'll try to figure out what that developer looks like, um, you know, what his skills are in terms of technologies that they're going to be using, in terms of seniority, what kind of people skills do they need. And we will go and find somebody who has those. 
we put everybody through an extensive vetting process, and and the vetting process is you know a number of interviews, some of them technical, some of them not. But ultimately, we want to introduce one or two developers max, and we want to say, look, these are the two guys that we think uh, might be a good fit for your project. Let's have a conversation with them. Once our clients meet these developers and are able to you know have a little conversation with them, we want two things. One, we want the the clients to feel comfortable with the developers uh you know is this somebody who you would like to work with and the second thing is we want the developers to feel comfortable with the clients so it's a two-way street we've had developers back out of of deals because they didn't feel comfortable with the opportunity and uh, that wasn't going to work out with us because ultimately we want these to be long-term relationships you know we're not looking for three-month projects we're looking for long-term ones Hmm. all right well let's go ahead and do some picks dear ruby developer Are you sick and tired of working on crappy old legacy code bases? There's got to be a better way. If you want to get a better job, here's what you can do. Find a technology that's really in demand, build a side project using that technology, and then use that side project as experience to get your next better job. I've done this myself several times, it definitely works. What I think is a really good technology to learn right now is Angular. Angular is really in demand right now and it's not going away anytime soon. I have a free guide to getting started with Angular and Rails at angularonrails.com slash rr. Good luck and enjoy this episode of Ruby Rogues. Jason, what are your picks? Okay, so I have one single pick and it is, I'm just reading the description on Amazon, Samsonite Colombian leather flap over laptop messenger bag. It's the um, laptop briefcase I bought recently. Um, I had just been like lugging my laptop around in a backpack for a long time. And since, uh, since I'm not in high school anymore, I thought maybe I should have like a grown-up bag. And so I bought this online, <laughs> and it's been, it's been really great. And I'll probably have it for years and years to come. Uh, definitely, definitely worth the money. So check it out. Nice. I have a really nice bag like that, but it started to give me shoulder issues, so I had to switch. Same. I went back to the backpack for that same reason. I had a nice shoulder bag. It looked all professional. Now I now I look like a now I look like a guy who's trying to crash high school or something like that. Yep. So, <laughs> do you have some picks for us, Brian? I have one pick as well. I have that MacBook with the the Touch Bar on it, and I'm. I'm one of the, the one of the rare people that enjoys that touch bar um, because it actually does something for me because I'm using uh, an app that I've used for a long time called Better Touch Tool. You know, Better Touch Tool is great because it lets you do keyboard shortcuts and mouse gestures and things like that. Uh, but they have support for making your own customized stuff for the touch bar too. So you can, if you, if you've got all this blank space up there because the app you're using doesn't support it, you can go ahead and put your own stuff up there, and you can make things that are globally available on the touch bar. And you can make shortcuts that are application specific. So uh, I've I've got some special things for when I do presentations on my touch bar that I can just activate. Now all of a sudden I have quick quick keys on my touch bar for switching between my presentation software and my terminal, and it just it's really handy and, and the web browser. Uh, and so it's just really handy to be able to take control over that thing. And I think it's. Uh, if if you find yourself with one of these laptops, maybe from work, or maybe you bought one because you needed an upgrade and you you're just not getting what you need out of the Touch Bar, check out Better Touch Tool. It's it's there's a nice trial for it. The application is not that expensive, and it's incredibly powerful when you dig into it. 
I'll admit to having been a little bit skeptical of the touch bar. I'll just I'll jump in with a couple of picks here. So things are picking up a little bit with the show. And I guess I have to talk about this at some point on the show. So if you've been listening to Ruby Rogues for a while and you're subscribed to the RSS feed, you'll notice that I have spun up a new show called My Ruby Story and I've been putting it on the Ruby Rogues feed. In fact, if you're paying attention in your podcast app, it actually now says all Ruby podcasts by devchat.tv. So hint, hint, I'm working on another one. Another two, actually. So, you know, kind of keep that in your head. If you want just Ruby Rogues, you can actually go subscribe to Ruby Rogues only. If you want just the My Ruby Story, then you can go check those out as well. And yeah, all of that's going on. One other thing that I'm going to pick here really quickly is something that I've been working on. And I, I owe a little bit of an explanation to the audience with this. I was going to put on a Ruby remote comp. I think it was next week or the week after. And I had a bunch of stuff come up. I couldn't quite line up all the speakers that I wanted. And so, and then I ran across this new, this format for online events. uh, That's the online summit. And I really liked the idea. So if you were planning on attending Ruby remote conf, of course, this will probably come out after the conference was supposed to be held. I'm pulling together Ruby dev summit or Ruby Ruby developer summit. You go to rubydevsummit.com. A few things that I've changed. One is that it's free to attend the Ruby remote conf would have cost you, uh, I think, $100 or something to attend. You can get an all-access pass that gets you into the Slack room, and I'm going to have some bonuses for that, and you'll get the recordings. down. You know, you can download the recordings after the conference if you would like with the all-access pass. But if you want to just attend, you just uh, put your email address in, and you'll get emails about speaker announcements and you know reminders to show up when the talks are. So I'm, I'm super excited about that. I'm, I'm going to run it for a week. It's going to be, it looks like the third week in October. Two of the keynote speakers that I'm talking to right now, I may have to move it back a week. So it's either going to be the 16th through the 21st or the 23rd through the 30th or something like that. So anyway, keep an eye out for that. Going to have some awesome speakers. I'm reaching out to them right now. Yeah, I'm super excited about it. So uh, go check that out. And then also Ruby Rogues Parlay. I've moved it over to a Slack channel. Um, I don't quite have enough people to start paying people to come and do um, presentations for for us yet. But uh, as soon as I have, you know, 20, 30, 40 people in there, you know, paying 10 bucks a month, I'm going to dedicate most, if not all of that money, depending on how much it costs to get somebody to come talk to us for an hour to come speak to us. So, you know, I'm hoping to line up some folks and, and see what we can make happen that way. So uh, definitely go check those out. I know that I've talked a lot about my own stuff here, but yeah, that, that's kind of the what I've been working on in the meantime for everybody here. And yeah, David, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I have three. If that's okay, I'll be quick about them. Um, but the first is MicroConf. I don't know if anybody has brought that up here, but it was my first time attending MicroConf. This year I was able to go in April to the Growth Edition, and it was fantastic. It was a small conference. I think we had about uh, a little bit less than 300 participants. Is that right? Something like um, that. It was terrific, though. I agree with you there. Yeah. Uh, you know, but there are two things that were particularly interesting for me. One was the mix of content. Uh, you know, we had a lot of stuff on marketing, which I'm not good at. So I learned a lot on that side. Um, we had, uh, you know, one speaker bring up some accounting things that were really important for SaaS companies. And I didn't explain what it was, but basically it's a uh, conference for bootstrapped uh, SaaS companies. And, uh, you know, the thing that I benefited from the most was a bunch of great contacts that I made. So I, I met a lot of cool people, uh, had opportunity to speak to some people that were now 
now working with um, either as clients or <laughs> you know providing them services. And uh, yeah, uh, that was great. Um, on my way back from MicroConf, I uh, passed through New York, which brings me to my second pick. Um, I went to visit a client there. And my Lenovo laptop, my, it was this, it's a gaming laptop that I've been using for a couple of years. It, it died. Um, I'm a Ruby on Rails developer, so I basically need to work on either Linux or Mac. And I had this huge, uh, heavy laptop um, that I had ran a virtual machine on so that I could run uh, Rails, and it died. Uh, and I needed to continue to work. Um, so I went out to the closest Best Buy, and I bought a MacBook Air. Um, so we have two MacBooks uh, as picks. And it was the simplest, cheapest MacBook Air that I could find, and so far I'm loving it. You know, it's uh, much, much, much lighter than, than my uh, heavy Lenovo gaming laptop, uh, and it does the job just fine. And then finally, there's a book called The One Minute Manager. Have any of you heard of it? Mm-mm. Oh yeah, it's, I've uh, heard of it. Oh yeah, well it's a, it's a great book. It's by Kenneth Blanchard, and it's a little story. It's about seventy pages, I think. It's a story about a guy who's out to find the best manager, and it just has some simple principles. It has three or four principles in it that have been really, really good for our team. Uh, we have a small in-house team of five people, and we work with a number of developers uh, that are not in office. Um, but it has really helped us get things on track. So those are my three picks. Nice. And uh, yeah, we asked people how to connect with your company. If they want to see what you're doing these days, are you on Twitter or GitHub or have a blog or what's the best way to? Yeah, sure. Um, we have a blog on Medium. It's medium slash blue dash coding. We haven't been able to set the subdomain up yet properly. Um, but you can check out www.bluecoding.com. Uh, we'll always keep everything up to date there. Uh, and you can also email me at david at bluecoding.com. Awesome. All right. Well... Uh, We'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Thank you for coming, David. Thank you very much for having me. All right. We'll catch everyone next week. Take care. Bye, guys. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.